So great to be with you like this. It's a joy. If you're watching online, you, you didn't get to experience the, this room just singing. Thank you for participating with us this way. Um, grateful for, for spaces like this to be able to worship together. Uh, I will just say, um, A, number one, I wasn't in the room for Jamie's joke, and that was intentional. Uh, that was a desecration of my staff photo from our webpage. Somebody asked last night, what did you have to pay Brody to get him to wear that Flames jersey? I did not put on a Flames jersey. That was, I mean, a fantastic Photoshop job that was done there, but that was a desecration of my photo and there'll be consequences. So we are looking for a new junior high pastor. If you know of anyone, um, just kidding. April Fools, Jamie, just kidding. Hey, I have the privilege of wrapping up the series that we've been in the last several weeks that we've just called Books We Don't Read, and I hope you've enjoyed these minor prophets along with us. We've been tackling these, these little prophetic books that typically don't get a whole lot of airtime in churches like ours, and this weekend I'll be working through the book of Zechariah. And I'll be honest, this one felt like a lot of heavy lifting when I cracked it open and realized what was ahead of me, I was a little bit shocked. Uh, It's one of the longer minor prophets, it feels like it should maybe be a major, Um, but it's squeezed into the minor prophets, coming into 14 chapters long, and for sure it's one of the more, if not the most, bizarre of the group. And if you did any reading ahead, my friend Greg grabbed me this morning, he said, I don't know how you're going to do this, because this is crazy. And he's right, it is quite crazy. You know what I'm talking about if you read ahead. See, Zechariah reads in a very familiar way to the book of Revelation, in that it's full of imagery and poetry and some really bizarre visions and dreams. And there's a ton that's packed into this little book, way more than the 30 minutes I have this weekend can give justice towards. So you're going to need to buckle in and hold on tight because we're going to fly through it. I'd encourage you. I love, I'm starting to see more like real paper Bibles showing up here. That's awesome. But if you could open up the scriptures, if you've got a version of of it in some way, shape, or form with you to the book of Zechariah. We are going to be camping and moving through it pretty quickly, but it'd be great for you to have it there in front of you. Now, one thing we're going to clearly see, and this was intentional, is that Zechariah moves us towards Holy Week perfectly. Zechariah is one of the, the more um, messianic minor prophets, which just means he speaks of the coming Messiah the most, and he perfectly points us in the direction of Palm Sunday, which as we've seen is this weekend. If you're new to all All of this stuff all together, Palm Sunday is just the first day of Holy Week that starts now. It's the week that leads up to Easter and it points us, Palm Sunday, back to the moment of the Gospels when Jesus, as Jamie described, rode into the city of Jerusalem on that donkey on his way to display his deep love for all of the world as he would move towards the cross and creating a way for us to find purpose and healing and hope both here and in the world to come. So more on that in just a little bit. Uh, Zechariah is set after Israel's return from the Babylonian exile. It's written in and around the kind of exact same time as Haggai, which we looked at just last weekend. The book of Ezra, another Old Testament work, describes that Haggai and Zechariah both challenged the people towards the rebuilding of the temple. So if you missed the last few messages, here's a quick little piece of context. The earlier prophets' messages were focused on the incoming realities of the conquer and oppression and exile. They were letting the people of Israel know that as a result of their their disobedience and their lack of care and concern for anyone but themselves, that God was going to now lift his hand of protection from them, and, and subsequently they'd be overtaken by the Syrian and Persian Empire. 
And as a result, the temple or the place where people encountered God was destroyed. And the people ended up being scattered and many were taken into captivity by the Babylonians. It's pretty bleak. It's, it's a pretty dark part in Israel's history. And in the book of Jeremiah, one of the major prophets, the prophecy stated that that exile, which was expected, would last for 70 years. And that after those 70 years, God would rebuild his people and would bring about a brand new temple. The problem, however, for Zechariah's audience is that those 70 years are almost wrapped up. And this has not yet been their story. Their temple is still in ruins. Their people are still somewhat scattered. And Israel as a nation is but a shadow of what it used to be. And so the book of Zechariah answers the question, why? Why are we still waiting? Why, why has the prophecy not been fulfilled yet? I hope you see, and, and I found when I wrestled with this, that, that Zechariah's message is a beautifully pointed message for us today as well, as we find ourselves as followers of Jesus in a similar place to Zechariah's audience, asking a very similar question, in that Jesus, he came. He, he came, he, he promised to come back, he established his kingdom, and yet here we are, and the world still for us seems in a lot of ways pretty bleak and broken and, and painful and challenging, and so Why? Why has the prophecy not been fulfilled yet? And we'll get there, so hold on. Zechariah's book's divided into a couple of sections. The first features these eight dreams or visions, which is the weird part, I'll be honest, and they prove to be the, the heaviest lifting of my prep. And after these, the second half contains some prophecy and some poetry kind of scattered together. And so chapter one begins with a call from Zechariah to the people not to be like, he's, he's telling them, don't be like your ancestors, and he implores the people to turn back to God. The people in this section, they respond by declaring, you got it. Like, we'll do that. We're on board. They repent and they commit to being different than their ancestors were. Or so it looks that way. Here's Zechariah starting in chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo. The Lord was extremely angry with your ancestors. So tell the people, this is what the Lord of armies says. Return to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies, and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Do not be like your ancestors. The earlier prophets proclaimed to them. This is what the Lord of armies says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not listen or pay attention to me. This is the Lord's declaration. Where are your ancestors now? And do the prophets live forever? But didn't my words and my statutes that I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? So the people repented and said, as the Lord of armies decided to deal with us for our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. Now, what follows from this point are the dreams. Now, it's important for us to try and understand that visions and dreams have been used and looked at all throughout the Old Testament. And they were designed to give meaning to current events and realities, or they would point towards things that were yet to come in the future. And Zechariah has eight of these dreams in kind of rapid-fire succession. And they are kind of strange. They're, they're not unlike the dreams that you have. I had one of those weird dreams last night. You know those dreams where your teeth fall out of your mouth and you end up naked at school again? And you're like, what is this? 
It's like, this is dreams, right? So it's, we shouldn't be surprised when we encounter some, some bizarre nature in, in dreams like this. If you want to get a good flyover of the dreams and what they're pointing to, I, I'd encourage you to go online, check out what Tim Mackey did at the Bible Project. He summarizes the dreams in about four minutes, and it's really worth the watch. But each of these eight visions are, are parallel together. They're paired together with another, pointing towards four main themes. So the first set of visions in chapters 1 and 8 point towards what's next. The reality is, is that the exile is almost over, and the question again being asked is, is now the time for the messianic kingdom? The vision that Zechariah has is of horsemen who are on patrol, wandering all over the earth and seeing this world full of peace and rest. It's this resolve to the last 70 years of chaos. Again, along with this persistent question of when will we see the restoration and the promises fulfilled? The second set of dreams and visions are are reflections on Israel's past sin and their exile. We have this vision of these blacksmiths and these horns in chapter 1, which represent the nations of Persia and Assyria, the very nations that would rise up and conquer Israel, along with another dream in chapter 5 of a woman who's in this giant basket, which is being lifted up and flown, carried away by angels. Again, just, it's a dream. But this woman, she represents Israel's rebellion, which is being taken away, the rebellion's being taken away into exile. It's a beautiful picture of God's discipline not being directed towards his children, but rather towards their sin. The third set of vision, uh, visions point towards the new Jerusalem. In chapter two, you have this vision of New Jerusalem or of Jerusalem being measured like an architect who's drawing up blueprints in anticipation of this new city that's to be built along with this new temple. But along with that vision, you have in chapter five a vision of these scrolls, these giant scrolls that are flying out over top of the land, representing the whole nation of Israel being purified by the word of God or by scripture, which Isaiah or Zechariah is very clear, has to precede the restoration of the people and the rebuilding of the nation. So before that can happen, the people need to be purified. And finally, the last set of visions in chapter 3 and 4 are of Joshua, the high priest in Zerubbabel, the royal heir of the King David. And in these, we get this just clear picture of Israel's sins being removed as these old, dirty, filthy, tattered garments are being taken off and they're replaced with these fresh, clean, crisp, royal garments. And the point of these visions is to help the people see that the messianic kingdom, it will come, but it will only come if the people are faithful to God. God's covenant is fulfilled so long as the people uphold their end of the agreement. And then Zechariah shifts in chapter 7, 8. He kind of summarizes the whole dream section in which the people come asking the question, we've mourned for 70 years. Is now the time for us to stop our grieving and is God's kingdom finally going to come? And again, Zechariah tells them that their ancestors rejected the call of the prophets and as such, they faced exile. And so he reminds them again too that their generation will see the messianic kingdom but only if they're faithful to the covenant. So here's what Zechariah says regarding God's part of the promise. Go to chapter eight and you'll see a few verses on the screen where it's verse seven and then 11 to 13. 
says, the Lord of armies says this, I will save my people from the land of the east and the land of the west. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem and they will be my people and I will be their faithful and righteous God. But now I will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies for they will sow in peace. The vine will yield its fruit, the land will yield its produce, and the skies will yield their dew. I will give the remnant of this people all these things as an inheritance. As you have been a curse among the nations, house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you, and I will bring you, you will be a blessing. Don't be afraid, and let your hands be strong. So God, he he promises his part of the agreement. And here's what Zechariah then says the people are to do to uphold their end. Zechariah 8, looking at verse 16 and 17 and part of 19. These are the things you must do. Speak truth to one another. Make true and sound decisions within your city gates. Do not plot evil in your hearts against your neighbor. And do not love perjury. For I hate all of this. This is the Lord's declaration. Therefore, love truth and peace. In other words, here's what Zechariah is doing. He's taking their original question that they're asking a couple times throughout this this book of, is God's kingdom going to come to us soon? He's taking that question and he's flipping it on its head. And instead, he's asking them back, are you prepared to be the kind of people who are ready to receive and participate in God's kingdom? And then that question just kind of hangs there in the book. It doesn't really get an answer. There's no real resolve. And I think that's on purpose because, because I think that, that same sort of wrestle and, and lack of resolve is, is a question that sits over us in many ways still today too. And we'll come back to this idea, but as we've mentioned countless times throughout this series, the grievous loss of identity that Israel created for themselves was in their total disregard for the fact that they were chosen by God to be a blessing to all the nations. The people of Israel were to be catalysts in God's blessing being realized all over the earth. He chose them to channel God's blessing, and yet they got it wrong over and over again by hoarding that blessing for themselves and preventing God's blessing from being experienced anywhere but for them. And so their question, are we going to receive blessing yet, is challenged rightfully by God by saying, I don't know, are you ready to be a blessing yet? And Zechariah then concludes with the final section, chapters 9 through 14, which are a collage of poems and, and, and about the future, about the messianic kingdom images. In the first half, 9 through 11, describe the coming of this humble messianic king who's riding on a donkey into the new Jerusalem to establish God's kingdom over the nations. Which, if you didn't know, just some context, Zechariah was written 500 years before Jesus ever took a step on the planet. Look at Zechariah 9, verse 9. He says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And again, if that sounds familiar to you, it should. This is what we're celebrating this weekend, Palm Sunday, foretold by Zechariah over 500 years plus before Jesus ever showed up. Zechariah told of this moment which would precede Holy Week as Jesus would be this humble king riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. 
And then Zechariah, he turns the corner and he describes that, that this king, now symbolized in Zechariah's writing as this shepherd over the flock of Israel, will be rejected, will be shunned, first by his own people, but then also by their leaders, who then also ref- get, get symbolized as these other shepherds. And so God then hands Israel over to these bad shepherds, these corrupt shepherds. And again, it's this profound pointing towards the rejection of Jesus, his arrest at the hand of the religious elite to the satisfaction of the chanting crowd. And all of this in Zechariah's writing then raises the question, will Israel's rejection of her king last forever? And the final section, chapters 12 through 14, answers that question by saying, no, no, it won't. It's another collection of poems and pictures about this future coming messianic kingdom. And they depict the new Jerusalem as a place where God's justice and righteousness will confront and defeat evil among the nations. And then God will confront the rebellion in the hearts of his own people. He says he's going to pour out a spirit of repentance upon the people and they'll grieve and repent their rejection of this messianic shepherd. Look at chapters 12, verse 10, and see Good Friday written all over it. It says, Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem, and they will look at me whom they pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one who weeps for a firstborn. However, this mourning will turn to dancing. What was done upon the cross is revealed as the very thing which brings this ultimate hope and promise to the world. And so the book of Zechariah ends depicting this this final new Jerusalem as a gathering point for all of the nations. This city that becomes like this recreated garden of Eden and from it flows this river of living water from the temple bringing about healing to all creation. Look at Zechariah 13 and part of 14. On that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the residents of Jerusalem to wash away sin and impurity. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it towards the eastern sea and the other half towards the western sea in summer and winter alike. On that day, the Lord will become king over the whole earth, the Lord alone and his name above. Again, the summary of the whole thing back to the conclusion of the first half of the book is that God's messianic kingdom will come, but it will only come when the people are ready to live into and for that new kingdom. And that's the book of Zechariah. Now here's the deal. I wanted to burn through it really fast because I wanted to give us some time today to wrestle with the what now. What, what do we do with all of this? Or what should we do? Or what should this mean for us today? And here's the deal. I've said this a couple times now. We today find ourselves in a very similar position to the people of Israel then. God who had revealed himself to them was still yet to come and establish his messianic kingdom. They were caught in between promises and prophecies that had not yet been fully realized. And yet here we are today. Christ has come. He begun here and now his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. However, he's coming back again to finish it once and for all. And so we, like Israel, we sit in this in-between, the now but not yet, between promises and prophecies to be fulfilled. 
And while we have the benefit of seeing Zechariah's prophecies about Christ come to fruition in the Gospels, we still find ourselves waiting for the final encore, waiting for Revelation 21, for the lasting and true marriage of heaven and earth, a time when all evil will be eradicated, where pain and sorrow and, and, and shame will be removed once and for all. I mean, this was Jesus' promise when he was here, and yet we find ourselves asking the same question as the people of Israel, when? When? When will it come? When, when will God's kingdom finally be realized? When will the pain end? When will justice be served? When will hope and promise finally be fulfilled? And so as such, I think we should find our answer to that question or our resolve to that question in the same upside down answer that Zechariah gave to Israel. When are we? When are you ready to receive and participate in God's kingdom. See, my friends, this is what all this is about. Like, like all of this is about. We don't, we don't gather here just because we want to burn an hour of your week, right? Like that's not what we're doing here. We don't, we don't staff this place and build plans and budgets and run programs and groups and experience out, out of a sense of duty or just tradition. We do all of this because we actually believe at our core that when people get it and they step into the realities of God's kingdom by receiving it and participating in it, that God's kingdom actually comes and it's actually realized on earth as it is in heaven and that we play a part in all of that that you my friends play a part in all of that in God's kingdom breaking into our world and your stories in your homes and in your neighborhoods I mean this was the heartbeat behind our denomination the Christian and Missionary Alliance a true belief and conviction that the sooner the world hears about and receives the life-changing story of Christ the sooner Christ himself will return it's the reason we go into the hardest and least reached places. And yet, if I'm being just really honest and transparent, I feel like in a lot of ways, we've lost any and all sense of expectation and anticipation of Christ's return in glory. I mean, we get so caught up in, in the here and now, clinging to this pacified, earthly experience of life, clinging to, to what we can have and experience now, clinging to the things that, that we can control, the control of our own personal blessing, clinging to hope of extending our life on earth just a little bit longer versus desiring with all our heart and with all of our passion, Christ's return and a desire to go and to be with him. And so then we've settled. We've settled for an hour of church on Sunday. And we've completely lost our sense of passion and commitment to God's kingdom, realized on earth as it is in heaven today. And I think we do this because we don't really sense or feel the same urgency. I mean, if you knew, like if we all had on our calendars a shared event that was like, Christ is coming back next Thursday, Right? And we're like, okay, this is a big day. Like, we'd prepare for that in a different way, wouldn't we? If we knew the day of his return, we would live with a different sense of expectation and anticipation than we do right now. 
I love, I love Peter, the character in the New Testament. Uh, he's my spirit animal, I've told you that. He's passionate, driven, he spoke before he ever thought. He's bold, he's courageous. Peter was the center of Jesus' mission on earth and Peter would be powerfully recommissioned by Jesus after his resurrection to bring about and establish the church here on earth. And so, writing some 30 years after, so Peter's writing to this bunch of these churches, 30 years after the resurrection, to the early church. This church was already starting to wrestle with this. What's happening? Like, when is, when is this gonna, when is this gonna take place? They're in between the, the promises and the prophecies. They're starting to wrestle and doubt whether Christ is actually going to return. And Peter, sensing this and knowing this, he wrote this. Second Peter verse three, or chapter three, verse nine. He said, the Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay but he's patient with you because he doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. See, God's heart is the same that it's always been for the entire world to experience his blessing. That's, that's why the delay, because there's people who have yet to hear and need to hear and need to know the truth and need to experience hope eternal. People who need to find their place in God's kingdom purposes here and now. And again, because like it's always been, like it was for the people, like it was for those who were turning from exile, God then is looking to all of us to help make it happen. So Peter, continuing his thought, says this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And on that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. And since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and as you hasten, it's coming. Because on that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire, the elements will melt with heat. But based on his promise, we wait for new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. I mean, do you sense a different urgency from Peter here? He says, yes, we're waiting, we wait, but we wait actively. See, we are, my friends, you've got to get this, you are the delay. Did you, do you ever think about that? You're the delay as to why Christ hasn't returned yet. On both sides, both because of God's patient desire for all souls to turn to Christ, but also because of our idle hands in not yet building his kingdom on earth. Both sides are why we still wait. Peter says he instructs that, that we're to actually hasten. We're to hurry along God's kingdom here on earth. We're to live with such anticipation of God's kingdom that it drives us towards action and obedience and reverence. You're the delay. My friends, Jesus is who he says he is. And I hope that through this series, you've, you've been able to see that really clearly as this wondrous story of scripture all just profoundly points towards Christ himself. Promises and, and prophecies, hundreds of them, all fulfilled in the person of Christ. And as one of your pastors here, I just, I long for you to see yourself in and part of that story. As one who is, 
uniquely and individually called and instructed to walk in obedience, desiring to be transformed by the gospel and actively participating in its purpose and its mission as one who is helping to hurry along God's kingdom here today. Church, I I long for you to long for Christ and his kingdom and his coming glory above everything else, over all the things of, of the world, over that which you can control, over your time and your energy, your resources, your stuff, and even your own life. And out of that longing, I so pray that you'd find a way to passionately engage in God's kingdom here and now, hastening it along towards completion because that is what this is all about. And so what are you waiting for? I mean, don't you long deep down within your soul to give your life to something greater? Because you actually can. Now, next weekend, we're gonna gather together like the church has done for thousands of years, along with millions, maybe even billions of people all over the planet to remind ourselves, as well as proclaim to our community the truth of the gospel to invite people into the grand narrative of Christ crucified and resurrected. Practically speaking, four services. Good Friday, 10 a.m., one on Holy Saturday, 7 p.m., and then listen. I don't want you to miss this. If you come at 10, you're either going to be super early or super late. 9-11, okay? So just next weekend, we're back to 9-11, just Easter Sunday. So if you're confused, go to the website, go to our social. We're proclaiming it on the screen outside. You should have no excuses. <laughs> but some of you will. And we'll love you when you come at 10 anyway. But I'd also like for you to consider whom it is that you're going to invite to bring with you this weekend. We want you to come, for sure. And we want to remind ourselves of this story. But I want you to consider and pray about and think about who it is in your life and in your sphere of influence who needs to hear this story. I mean, Easter remains a weekend when the Cheesters, you know, the Christmas and Easter, you know, the Cheesters, that's what we called it in Bible college. It's the theological term is Cheester. So it's the time when the Cheesters are willing to come to church. It really is. It's, it's when the seekers and the not interested actually would be willing to step into a place like this. And so would you be courageous Don't call him a cheester. (laughs) Call him their name and your friend. But would you be courageous and bring someone with you to help them hear this story? I'd also love for you to sign up in helping us host our community. Lots of opportunities. We're recruiting volunteers in lots of roles. As these weekends, we do have a lot of visitors joining us. And so if you'd go to our website, spac.ca slash Easter serve, you can see the, the different places you can plug in to play a part in our services next weekend. And lastly, for some of you, your next step going forward might be getting baptized next weekend. So maybe you're here and and you've just recently decided to to follow Jesus or after following him for a long time, you finally decide that you need to respond in obedience to his instruction, his call to be baptized. It's time to proclaim your commitment to him and his mission. And so for some of you, baptism might be the right next response for you. We have over 20 people getting baptized next weekend. And so happening right now, as soon as I say amen, Out this door to the right in a room behind this wall is our fireside room and there is a a team of people who are there ready to receive you, meet you, and talk to you about baptism in our prep class. 
Because some of you know it's, it's your time to take a step and, and join those 20 as well on the weekend. And attending that class over there doesn't force you to get baptized. You can still back out. But we have a team that's there who'd love to connect and answer any questions you might have about what baptism is and how you can take that next step. At its core, baptism is an outward confession of an inward decision. It's publicly declaring that you want to be all in with Jesus. It's not having arrived yet. It's just a declaration of going in that direction in obedience and wanting to be obedient to his call and his example to being baptized. And so if that's you this morning, don't hesitate. We'd love to help you take that next step. Okay, church, would you stand with me and let's pray for this coming weekend. Jesus, I'm grateful for this community and my friends. I'm grateful for opportunities to gather like this and I don't take it for granted knowing that there's many people all over the world who can't do this sort of thing. I'm humbled um, by your kindness and your goodness, Jesus. I'm in awe of the way that you, through divine intervention, orchestrated thousands of years and moments and experiences that all lined up perfectly and pointed towards Christ. Jesus, I, I pray that, that as we consider these books that we've sat in and the, the real uh, honest prophetic calls from many of these authors back towards you, back into obedience, back into faithfulness, that we would do the hard work of asking ourselves, is that me? Am I responding in that way? Am I living my life in such a way that God's kingdom is being realized here on earth as it is in heaven? Not for the sake of guilt or shame, but for the sake of inspiration and direction and purpose towards who it is that you would have us become. And so Jesus, move in our hearts and our minds. You know the next step for all of my friends here. Help them to see it and help them to have boldness and courage to step towards it and into it. We pray for this week as we anticipate the, the greatest story that's ever been told. As we sit on Friday in the heavy, as we wrestle on Saturday in the unknown, and as we celebrate on Sunday, for the glorious resurrection. Jesus, I pray that you'd just be helping our hearts prepare for this weekend. And I do pray that you'd be giving us names and faces of those who you want us to ask and that you'd give us, you'd orchestrate these divine moments where the ask just happens so naturally. And we'd be able to help many within our community hear and experience the gospel story maybe for the very first time. I pray for my friends who, who know it's time for them to get dunked and, and they need to stop delaying it. And so with courage and with, with time and space and margin, I pray that they would wander down to that room and, and just share a conversation. And if it was your plan and your will for them to make that next step, that you'd just make that known to them really clearly. So thank you, Jesus, for the space, um, for opportunities like this. We love you, and we look forward to celebrating you next weekend. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you, church. We look forward to seeing you with us next weekend. Have a great rest of your week. Take care.